or a smartphone, something you'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Um, we've been working through First and Second Samuel now for several months. Um, we're nearing the end, just a, just a couple weeks left, and we'll finish this. I'm really, um, as, as we've been thinking about, you know, 10 years in now, really part of the desire here at Redeemer was to build it um, simply on the Word. And so we've tried to alternate um, Old Testament and New Testament books as we're, we're teaching. We just work through them chapter by chapter, um, believing that God's Word um, is, is what we are going to be rooted and grounded on. It's why we, we actually save um, a bulk of our worship through song for after the sermon, because we believe it's where God's going to speak most clearly to us is through His Word um, week in and week out, and being able to respond um, as He speaks and guides us in His Word. Um, preaching through um, what it means is sometimes we have Sundays like Mother's Day this year, where we land on really just difficult topics um, that were... Well, there's no good Sunday. It was a little unfortunate it landed maybe on Mother's Day. Um, this morning's passage is one that you look at and you're just like, um, it's, it's not difficult necessarily because of the content. You're just like, I'm not sure why, why is this here? Um, it just seems maybe potentially a little unnecessary. And so what it's done over the last 10 years is it's forced us to really look at the Word, believing that all of it is given for life and godliness, that we need all of it. And so we do the, the hard work of digging into and, and finding that benefit. So here's where we're at in 2 Samuel. Um, at, because of David's sin with Bathsheba earlier in the, cha- earlier in the book, um, it then leads to him being super passive when his kids begin to act out in the same, similar manner sexually. Because of his passivity, um, two of his sons, one of them kills the other. Um, Absalom then decides, after murdering Amnon, that his dad maybe isn't really fit for for leadership and stages a coup. Um, That has now led to a war where some 20,000 men have died. Absalom has been killed. David is back um, in charge with no real challenger to the throne. And yet we've seen just the brutal consequence of sin, right? That David's starting um, with, with assaulting Bathsheba has now led to war, has led to the nation being fractured. And now David is, he's, he's been mourning that even when his military came back victorious after having defeated Absalom, right, he's mourning like they've lost. And Joab, his general, has to say, you're going to lose all the people. Like you're, you would rather those who opposed you be alive and us be dead. And so David kind of composes himself. Um, he goes and he greets his army. And he's now been on kind of a victory march back to Jerusalem, out of exile. And last week we saw him just begin to pardon some folks who, who had grievous offense and sin towards him. And he is headed back to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning and we're going to end um, the, just the last couple of verses of chapter 19, and then we'll pick up in chapter 20. Beginning in verse 41 of chapter 19. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why are you then angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expenses? 
expense? Has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So here's what's going on. There's, there's the twelve tribes of Israel. David is from the tribe of Judah. Judah and Benjamin are in the, in the south, and those two tribes um, are, are close. The other ten right, are now looking, in the, and that's who, when it says the men of Israel, it's talking about the other ten tribes. And basically, here we have David headed back to Jerusalem. He's at the Jordan, and the, the men of Judah are there. They've received him as king. And the men of Israel saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second. This was our idea first. Why is Judah here? We didn't get to celebrate with you. And you begin to have bickering amongst these two groups. And it, it's, it's petulant, right? It, it's childish that the men of Judah are saying, why do you have issue with us? Like, like David is from us. He is our relative. He's not giving us favoritism, right? How do we know he's not giving favoritism? He moved the capital out of Judah to Jerusalem. He took the ark out of the area of Judah and took it to Jerusalem. He's been trying to unite the nation. And so you have the men of Israel going, well, you should have told us. It was our idea first. So if you go back to um, 2 Samuel 19, 9 and 10, it was the men of Israel who were saying, hey, Absalom's dead. Maybe we should just like recognize David still as king. He's God's anointed. And it was David who had to send help to the elders of Judah to say, hey, why are you the last to receive me as king again? Right? And so as they, they have to go and kind of cajole them into receiving him as king. And so now basically these two sides are posturing for who does the king like more? Right? And so Israel is saying, we have, I have, we have ten shares. Like we, we like him more. We have more. We know him more. And Judah is saying, he's our dude. And so what, we, what we're seeing is that there's like a fracture in the nation. There where David had ruled this unified country, that now after the coup, after Absalom's betrayal, that what we're finding is the nation is fractured. And just because Absalom is dead doesn't mean that everything's going to go back to normal. That David is going to have to struggle to reunite the people. That they're not at peace and there is definite unrest, which sets the scene now for chapter 20. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and he said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. The king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. They were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, and he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. 
And there went out from him after jo- went after him Joab's men, and the Ketherites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay, so there's this unrest. There's this kind of like childish argument between the tribes. So finally, one of the men of of Israel it says that he's a worthless man. Basically, like blows a trumpet and it's like, hey, everybody's out. Like on my on my whistle, we're gone. And he basically is staging another coup, right? It's like, again, there's this rebellion of the king is here. And they're arguing in front of the king. And now Sheba's like, hey, he's not our king. Let's go. And so the men of Judah, they follow David on into Jerusalem. The men of Israel all head out. And we just continue to see the dysfunction and the, and the issue. We have a quick word about the, the concubine Remember, these are the ones that Absalom went into to basically flaunt that he was the king to offend his dad, to sever all relationships. And we're basically just told, listen, David did not go back into them as concubines ever. He cared for them for the rest of their lives, but they were, they were like widows, right? They were, they, were not, um, they were not given husbands, but they were provided for and cared for. In chapter 19, David takes... Joab, who had been his general, who's a relative of his, but who has not always listened well. And he's removed him as punishment because he killed Absalom when David told him not to. And he's removed him from being the general, and he made Amasa the general of his army. What's interesting here is Amasa was the general of the, was Absalom's army. Right? So he had been defeated in battle. And, but in order to punish Joab, to try to unify these, to try to say, listen, we are one nation, we're not going to have these divides, David had made Amasa a king. And so in his first charge from, from King David, he says, listen, go to Judah, rally the men, we've got to go after Sheba, be back here in three days. And in three days, he's not back. So we don't know what's going on here. One, is he... Is he betraying him, right? Is he actually still a traitor? Two, is he simply incompetent, and that's why he lost the battle earlier, right? That he shouldn't be in charge. Or three, is it not really either one of those, but is David just a little worried that maybe it is one of those, and he, he just jumps the gun, gave him a short deadline, he doesn't meet it, and so he sends Abishai and Joab and goes, listen, we can't let Sheba restart this rebellion. We've got to go get him now. And so they head out. We're not sure where Amasa is at this point. We're going to find out in just a second. All right, let's pick up in verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So he finally shows up. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And he went forward. As he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped 
And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway and onto the field and threw a garment over him. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. All right, so listen, Joab continues to Joab, right? Like, he just continues to do what we've seen. In chapter 3 earlier, when, when David again was trying to unify the country, he killed the opposing general that was beginning to help David when he killed Abner. We've seen him when David told him, don't kill Absalom. Show mercy if possible. He kills Absalom. Right? Like, that he attempts to do the expedient thing. He is fiercely loyal to David, and yet he believes that he knows best on what David and the nation need, and so he disobeys David often. Right? He's the one that wanted to bring Absalom out of exile. Then when Absalom was a problem, he's willing to kill him. Right? Like he continues to kind of be violent in his hands. And so the scene here is that he's got a sword, it's somewhat hidden, it's probably more of a dagger, and in the Middle East, still to this day, you'll see a man walk up to another man that he knows and he'll, he'll lean out his hand with his right hand and go to caress his beard. I almost thought I'd have someone up here to give an example, but I don't want to get punched this morning. So um, Dan was getting anxious that I was about to call him up here. Right, you'll reach out your hand and you'll like stroke the side of his beard and then bring it in and kiss your hand. Right, and it's just a sign, it's like a handshake. It's a sign of affection, it's a sign of friendship. And so basically what Joab is doing is he pulls up his hand and he's leaning in with this sign of affection. Like when it says grab the beard, it's not a violent move. It's a, it's a move of kindness, of gentleness, of friendship. And in his left hand, he's holding a dagger. And as he pulls in, he stabs, kills him. Right? We, we see Joab just being a man of, of action um, who serves his own interests, believing they are David's interest. But listen, we can probably give a little sympathy to Joab here. Amasa was a traitor. He, he had betrayed the king, had led an army into battle that was bloody and violent that Joab had fought. And so you can imagine there's some emotions stirred in him of, I can't let you near the king because I can't trust you. And my men died because of you. And by the way, you took my job. Right? There's probably kind of this muddied water of, it'll just be easier if you're gone. And so Joab does what, what we have seen him consistently do. He takes matters into his own hand. So now we have them. We know where Sheba is. He's holed up in this city called Abel. The men get there, and now they're trying to tear down the wall to go in and get Abel to put an end to this rebellion as quick as possible. So let's see how the city responds. Beginning in verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. She said, They used to say in former times, 
Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it for me, far be it that I would swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So this woman comes out, and she's basically saying, listen, we've got to stop the bloodshed. Joab, I don't want you ransacking my city. What do we have to do to stop this? And he's like, listen, I don't, want to, I don't need to kill anyone else in there, but I'm not leaving without Sheba. And so she makes a deal, and it's like, okay, we'll take care of it. And they toss his head out as evidence that they've taken care of it. And so Joab leaves, right? Goes back to the king. And, and then the 20, verses 23, 24, 25, and 26 are simply a list of the roles and the advisors in David's, um, in his command. Basically what it's telling us is this is order has been restored. There's no further challenge. Okay, so chapter 20. It's got a matter of fact, right? Like it's giving us this scene of, of unrest, of turmoil, and of it being set right and ordered and not in a pleasant way. Right? There's, there's continued death. Honestly, as, as I read through chapter 20, there's a portion of it, I was just, it was tiresome. Like there's a portion of this that's just, I'm, you're weary of the continued betrayal and bloodshed, and you're like, again? Like, can we not just kind of pull things together a little bit? Like, this is heavy, and it's weighty, and it's ugly, and you don't walk away going, look at all the heroes. You know, this, is, this is hard. And yet, many of you probably feel this way this morning. Maybe not with as much blood, right? But there's, you feel weary. The things are tiresome as you think about um, the media, as you think about politics, as you think about COVID. Um, as you think about different agendas being thrown out by different groups, whether you are for them or opposed to them, right? as you look at failing leaders and failing institutions that seem to hit the news all the time, right? Like there's just this, like you can go, oh, I'm tired of it. Like I'm tired of the dysfunction. I'm tired of the bad news. I'm weary of it. And so chapter 20 kind of brings us into, you can imagine David now, it's almost 40 years in being the ruler. And he's like, he's just weary. And he's tired. And it's ugly. And we can identify with it. Sheba determined, right? Like he is in the presence of the king watching this argument go back and forth. And in the presence of the king, he determines, I don't trust you. You're not my king. And he flees, calling others to flee with him to start another rebellion. I'm not going to recognize David. I'm not going to follow David. I'm going to rebel from David. In chapter 19, we see David returning as king, offering grace 
and forgiveness to those who had cursed him, who had warred against him. They ask for it and they receive it. Like David has already shown himself, he's not going to be bloodthirsty. He's offering grace, looking to unify the kingdom once again. But in chapter 20, what we're going to see is if you want to continue to rebel, there will be judgment. Like there will be consequence to it. There is grace offered, and if you don't choose that grace, if you don't want that grace, then you can have death. You can have judgment. So these are held side by side to help us see. Listen, David offered it to Shema, who had cursed him, who had mocked him, gave grace. And now here's Sheba going, yeah, you're not my king. And he ends up losing his head over it. It, it, it just feels foolish to see this like child, childish arguing, this petulance between these men when the king is literally present. And I think sometimes we can look at chapters like this and we can see clearly how foolish it is. Like We see more clearly in others than we often do in ourselves. Um, right, like those of you who, who are parents, who, who have grandchildren around, right, you look and you go, often um, you look at their behavior and you're like, God, why are you acting like a fool? And then you think about it for a second and you recognize yourself in it. You're like, ah, that hurt a little, right? Like you're throwing a fit because you didn't get your way and you're whining and you're crying I do the same thing. It just looks a little different. I've learned to make it a little more publicly acceptable, right? But I'll, I'll pout, right? Or I'll throw a fit or I'll complain or I'll whine. I'm doing the same thing, expressing the same emotion, right? I can see it really clearly in you. I don't want to address it in me, right? If we think about it in, a, in more of a positive light, there are times where I, I'll tell my kids, hey, why don't you come with me while we go do this thing, right? This, this fun thing or this errand. And like, I'm good, I'm good doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, but you don't understand, being with your dad's always going to be better. And then the Spirit reminds me, do you really believe that? Oh, yeah, I don't. Because there are times where I will do anything to avoid sitting before the Lord, being in the Word, being in prayer, right? And he's going, time with me is always better. And so we see it in others, but we can easily disguise and fool ourselves into believing that we don't struggle with the same things. And so the question for us this morning is this, is are we going to respond like Sheba? And not that we're going to lose our head, right? But the king is before us. How are we going to respond to the king? Because Adam and Eve, right, if we go back to the very first sin, right, like what were they asked to do? Not to trust God. Not to trust the king. He's holding out on you. There's a way that by your own hand, you can get something that God's not going to let you have. It was this temptation of a lack of trust. What Sheba does is he simply rebels and says, this is the king, we can do better. Right? They don't, he doesn't want to recognize him as, as good or powerful. David didn't seem to have that issue early. Now it's an issue because David has been marred a little bit. They're not impressed with the king. And listen, we can sit here this morning and say we know that Jesus um, is, is perfect, and so we wouldn't want to talk about him like this, but I want you to listen. This is Isaiah 53, um, the end of verse 2 and, and, and beginning of verse 3. Speaking, prophesying of Jesus says this, He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So would we not be so arrogant as to say, I would see the king, I would recognize him as king, that's great. Because Scripture says there was nothing, like people looked at him and they're like, ah, nothing special. Like people missed him. And David is being rejected here as king because they're saying we can get something better. They weren't impressed with him. And that people could see and look upon Jesus and say, I'm not impressed. There's nothing to make me esteem him. Now listen, there was. Right? There was, but it it was able to be missed. And so this morning... We have to ask the question, what are we searching out? What are we seeking in our lives to bring us peace, to bring us comfort, to bring us ease, to bring us joy, to bring us approval, to bring us power? Because there are many things that can bring those into our lives. Some of them, though, are temporary. And some of them are eternal. And so listen, we can look to substances to do that. And they can be illegal, like drugs. right? They can be not illegal, like entertainment. It can be religious activity that isn't really centered on Jesus, but is merely a means to gain approval from others, to gain some level of power or prestige, to gain some level of comfort because we believe we can twist God's arm and get what we want. It can be about success. We know that success is possible for those who don't love Jesus. Right? Success in the world's eyes. And so it can bring about comfort, and it can bring about peace, and it can bring about ease. But it doesn't last. It's not eternal. Right? Like, he's like, what if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? We can gain the world in this life, and this life will feel short in light of eternity when you realize you missed Jesus. And so what is it that we're seeking? What is it that we're looking to fill that void? And how are we receiving or responding to our King? Because we can numb ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. We can fool ourselves into believing right, that we're okay apart from Jesus. Who missed Jesus in the New Testament? The religious, the proud, powerful. You think of Rome, they missed him. Powerful, mighty, strong. The religious are like, yeah, I don't think you're it. Right? The arrogant are like, oh, we, don't, we don't need you. The rich young ruler is like, ah, oh, that's too hard. I'm going to walk away from the king. But who found him? Like, who recognized him as king? The broken, the sick, the needy, the self-aware, the despised, the ostracized. Those who saw that they had a need and that he could do something about it. So the prostitutes, the sick, the outcasts, they recognized Jesus. And they, they gained from him what they desperately needed. And so this morning, right, we can go now to 2 Samuel 20, this bizarre chapter, and go, oh, the question before us is this, is how are we going to respond to the king, and will we even recognize him? Will we run off in rebellion against Him? Right? Scripture tells us, listen, we are all enemies of Him. 
We have all gone according to our own ways, according to our way, trying to put ourselves on the throne and to find something to tell us that I don't need God. I have opposed Him. All of us have done that. Now, as He reveals Himself to us, do we recognize that we've done that and respond to the offer of grace that David offered in chapter 19 that Jesus offers eternally? Or like Sheba, do we run off, root ourselves in our fortified place, and find ourselves in judgment for eternity as an enemy opposed to God? So who do we say that He is? Who do I say that He is? He's King. And He is worthy. Right? Why do we sing in December, a weary world rejoices? Chapter 20 makes you weary. This world makes us weary. And when the king steps in and reveals himself, a weary world rejoices that it doesn't have to be this way any longer. The kingdom of God is here and we can be a part of it and know our Savior, our King. We can bow a knee willingly, rejoice and celebrate and follow and be transformed and make much of Him. Church, for some of us this morning, for the first time what needs to happen is we need to repent and lay down our sword that we have warred with God against and give up our claim on the throne. And for some of us, we need to repent because Jesus has the throne. We're just trying to take it away from Him again. right? That we've picked something up knowing Him and have gone back to war with Him for whatever insane reason, right? That we would give up control. And would we be glad for the grace that has broken in, that has poked holes in our ability to believe that we're in control? Right? Like it is the kindness of God to allow us to see that our will isn't connected to anything. That our control isn't controlling anything. And we can play and we can pretend and we can deceive ourselves but it's not happening. We think back to the, to the disciples on the boat in the midst of the storm. The circumstances are rocking them and they are terrified. And Jesus is at sleep. He's at peace because He's in control of the circumstance. Right? And He says, do you not know? Like, do you still not know who I am? Right? That they have this opportunity to see Him and to trust Him. That when our circumstances get blown open, when they are difficult, stressful, that we would see it's not about us gritting our teeth more and figuring it out and controlling it more. It's about receiving the one who actually is in control and bowing our knee and repenting and giving up the throne and being a glad, willing participant in the kingdom of God now and forever. I want you to listen to this last passage. This is Colossians 3 beginning in verse 5. This morning, as we have need to repent, listen to what Paul says to the church. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right? If we continue to oppose Him, we will find ourselves in a besieged city like Sheba with our head being thrown over the wall. Like Judgment is coming. In these two, you once walked. Like he's reminding all of us, 
If you think you're better than that, you're not. You have also opposed God when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And he then moves down and he says this. And let the peace, in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to in which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Right? He's giving this juxtaposition of turmoil and sin and the wrath and judgment that's coming because of it. Or we can let the peace of Christ dwell richly in us. In this world, in the midst of the turmoil and the chaos, and in the next for eternity, knowing that every tear will be washed away, that death will be no more, that sin and sickness and pain will be no more. And that's the kingdom that we can belong to. And so the circumstances of this life can get louder and rockier and stormier, and we can be rooted and grounded in the hope of God's Word, His promises that He has come, that He is coming again, that His life, His death, and His resurrection are sufficient for us. And so we can be at peace. Right? When the world is not, He will not fail us. His Word is eternal, and it will last, and the solid ground of Jesus will not fade away. So would we not be Sheba this morning, tucking tail and running as we fight the King, but would we receive the grace that's offered Father, would we, in this moment, not be quick to allow pride to raise up, thinking that we're better than Sheba, that we're better than, than those who need rescue this morning? God, would we be reminded that we, too, were once enemies of yours, that we have been the beggars in need of grace, nourishment, peace, and that you have richly given to us what we did not deserve? Father, would we give you praise and worship because we've received that? God, if we have um, become numb to that, God, would you allow our eyes to see you once again as King and would we be reminded of that this morning? And God, if, if we've never tasted that, would we lay down our sword? Would we, would we give up the throne that was never ours and that we don't really have because we don't have control? And to see you as the good shepherd who is calling us to restoration and peace and hope as sons and daughters of the King. God, we know this is a spiritual battle, so we ask you to do work in our hearts and our minds now. God, that you would give us courage to respond and that we would see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.